doing here um so we're doing this new project for um, the national organization of human services and if someone watching doesn't know what that is how would you describe it don you go first well uh nohs or the national organization for human services is an organization that has been in existence for uh, many years and we have been Early on, we struggled with identity as for, you know, di distinguishing ourselves from the National Association of Social Workers, but we're, we're really gaining some traction on that. It's uh, an organization that is broader than NASW, include and invite people who are uh, members of NASW or licensed social workers to become members of NOSE. We see ourselves as complementary and inclusive. So, uh, social workers are part of, of what we do. There are other professions, but really it's any of the helping professions um, can join and be part of human services. And we try to provide as many resources of value to our members and to the community at large. So if I was to come up to you off the streets and just say, what is a human service? Uh, what would be some examples that you would give me? I would probably say, you know, just out of name recognition, I would start with social workers and probably mention other things like caseworkers and uh, case managers, uh, people who work uh, with developmental disabilities, mental illness, you know, we're, we're a profession that just generally speaking helps our clients to meet their own um, potential. And we do that through many different ways. And we've got professionals who specialize in different populations, but we're really here to be a resource to all of them. All right, so you would say that lots of people have a misconception maybe about what human services are, what the human service professional is, like a very small kind of picture of what, what we do. Well, quite honestly, sometimes it gets confused with human resources just because people are very familiar with that term. Which is not the greatest okay. association because HR doesn't have a great rep either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because, you know, and we, as a, a college professor and advisor, I have to explain to my students, you know, when they they call or email, I have to, they make that initial touch and they're asking about human resources. I have to ask, did you mean human services or did you mean the business major? Sometimes they'll actually be uh, referring to human, meaning human services, but just the slip of the tongue is human resources. So you, you certainly don't want to misdirect somebody. So the first thing I do is ask. And I think one of the important parts of, of what we need to accomplish is get people to recognize what human services is. Don't start thinking about human resources. If we can some way 
connect in people's mind human services with the Department of Health and Human Services. That's going to get them thinking more accurately about what it is that we do. So we are talking today about specifically the National Organization of Human Services, New Life, and um, Ms. Rachel is going to share um, what I am NOHS is. That is her project right now, and so I'm going to let you introduce yourself. I am Rachel Drozdek-Sigaboos. I'm the membership director for the National Organization for Human Services. Um, I came a very different route than a lot of people who work in and around human services. Um, I worked as a collegiate and age group coach for 10 years after I graduated college. Uh, my master's is in sport and recreation management, but um, because of lived experience with mental illness um, and things that I've observed in my community, I felt like there was um, a, a deeper need that I needed to be exploring myself um, in terms of applying the skills that I have to a higher human purpose. Um, that wound up with me getting involved with the board of directors with the National Organization for Human Services because working in human services, I've seen so many excellent, highly skilled, passionate practitioners who burnt out and left the field. Um, and it's so sad to watch people who love, love their jobs, yep. who can't find another way to go than to leave because the love of their job and the amount of red tape and lack of funding and lack of support is stifling, um, that the only way to really cope with that is to find something else. Um, so I wanted to sign on with the National Organization for Human Services to try to reach our practitioners in a different way, in a better way, um, and prepare students that they're coming out of their programs with connections, with networks, with an opportunity to be mentored and to connect with other people who understand their experiences um, to prevent this tide of people leaving. Um, the I Am Knows campaign is part of that passion for me um, to identify, you know, Don was talking about social work and case managers. Um, I am going to um, Baldwin University online and I'm in the dissertation writing phase. So hopefully, you know, this time next year, I'll be Dr. Drozik Sigafus. But our program incorporates um, criminal justice, education, because really, and we're seeing it so much, it's a, it's, a, it's a very important topic of conversation right now, how humans are not one-dimensional. We don't, we don't live and function in silos. And so these siloed ways that we're trying to treat and understand and identify concerns and solve problems, you can't just say, this is a criminal justice issue. You can't just say, this is an education issue. You can't just say, this is a family support issue. In most communities, it's all of those things. Um, and they're all working against each other instead of working with each other. So the I Am Knows campaign is to bring people out to say, this is human services. Um, my job as, I'm not, but I love the mental health partnerships, the crisis partnerships with police departments right now to say, we need to be approaching this problem a little bit differently. 
Um, and this is how we're partnering together. This is how we're trying to address this problem in a new, innovative and effective, and now evidence-based practice. Especially, I like what you said about connecting students, but everybody kind of in the discipline. Um, and this is a question for the both of you. In your time working in this field, um, have you ever really seen a kind of um, engagement project or network uh, that you were invited to or you saw people in the discipline invited to? Kind of like a, like a movement to bring everyone together. Do you feel that, you know, as such a large spectrum of providers that, you know, the ability to come together as human service providers hasn't really been presented yet? Well, myself, I have belonged to different professional organizations related to the degrees that I've received. And it really, I've had the same experience that Rachel did, where it was basically silos. They just wanted to hear from other people who were specifically from that discipline. And that's what I think is so beneficial about uh, the National Organization from Human Services. It's very inclusive. Mm -hmm. It addresses issues like Rachel brought up about burnout and feeling isolated. You know, we provide so many services where people can gather for conferences. We've got all sorts of other resources, which we'll talk about a little bit later in this podcast. But um, it, it really helps to, to make people recognize, and this is where Rachel's I Am Knows program, I think, is, is so wonderful. It, it helps draw people together. And you see that even though you may not have taken the traditional route to being a helping professional, that your skills and your education are just as valid and there are other people who come in and, and that there's not just one specific way to become a quality human services professional. Mm -hmm. So I, I really like the inclusiveness. It's kind of a, a double-edged sword of being an organization abroad because we struggle with identity, but also uh, we're, we are inclusive and, and we're saying that people from these various disciplines are welcome mm -hmm. here. So uh, it's a challenge that we face continually in trying to define ourselves. But I, I very much believe as though it's, it's both our strength and our weakness in that we're so broad. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely echo that. Um, I think one of the reasons that a lot of human services and, and human potential um, resources have tended to stay siloed is that to bring everybody together in the room requires acknowledging the insurmountable, seemingly insurmountable complexity of human issues. That if we take only one group and we have you in a room, unfortunately becomes an echo chamber. And so Don, what you're talking about with um, it's, it's our strength and our weakness. When you bring all of these people into a conference and you're having um, panel discussions or different conversations, it could very well be that you have sessions going on side by side, you know, room next to room that are talking about the same issue and shining very different light on it. So I went to one a couple of years ago that was talking about um, the process of, um, and this was the 
Mid-Atlantic Consortium for Human Services, so our MOCS region of the National Organization for Human Services, um, and the trainer was talking about the effort to get lower income housing on Long Island. Um, and her, her conversation about it was so illuminating because she was able to address all of the different opinions and beliefs, and in many cases, falsehoods that existed about low-income housing. Then people thought, oh, it's going to bring in a certain kind of person that I don't want in my neighborhood. And what they had to do was identify, we're talking about people who just graduated from medical school, that the reason that they need to live in lower income housing is because their loans are so off the charts compared to their salaries that it's talking about young professionals, young families who are just trying to get their feet from under them. Um, and I thought that was such an amazing way of looking at this. Don, you talked about the Department of Human Services. Well, HUD is underneath that, right? So where does HUD come into this conversation? But if you allow the conversations to stay static, to stay in their silos, of course it looks like an easy problem to solve. When you're bringing people together and you have to have constructive conversations about how things wind together, like we're talking more and more nowadays about um, restorative justice and the school to prison pipeline. We're bringing two people, two groups of people into conversation with criminal justice and education who have not necessarily had expansive conversations before. Mm -hmm. I think that's an amazing example um, because it highlights that there is an inevitable, uh, there, there's a practice that can be applied that is effective um, and then there's the inevitable case that we will interact across dif disciplines or vocations, you know, the criminal justice system, the human services. Um, and that might escape a lot of people's understanding, too, even if they do know what a social worker is. Right. We understand that if we are working with, um, you know, adopted children or uh, child abuse, just specifically that includes you know, the, the law, it includes uh, social workers, it can include doctors. When those people sit around a table and they're discussing the livelihood of a child or yeah. maybe their client or whatever the case may be, no two people are gonna look at the problem the same yes. or one person will kind of be left out. Um, sometimes when it comes to partnerships, just in general between experts and their own and their own right, people do get that. Well, you can't talk to me about what I do as a provider because you don't do that as well. Um, and I think we have a challenge of addressing not only that within our um, in our network, creating a network and addressing that, but also inviting, it's a bigger challenge. It's inviting the whole, you know, just our nation alone to talk yeah. about being okay with what you have to say and sharing, sharing those ideas. And you know, we're dealing with people's lives here. I just was talking with my supervisor about that this morning. Um, we were talking about the, um, a conversation about removing children from homes where the caregiver is substance dependent. And that what we hear a lot from our, um, our substance use programs is that that depletes the amount of healing and recovery because of the added stress for a lot of caretakers who are substance dependent. Whereas from the, the child serving system, we're asking the question, well, 
you know, where does, where does the perpetuation of this process get ceased? And so there's a very difficult tension to address here because part of what human services does is it tries to um, install a human justice, so not criminal justice, a human justice, human dignity, human respect system that honors everybody but at the same time, that does require at times making difficult decisions and difficult calls about which person in a relationship we're going to be prioritizing at any given time. And that's a difficult thing to say out loud because at our core, we don't like the way that that feels. I think that is exactly it. And I love the way you worded that is deciding who to prioritize in that regard because we have an issue with comp things being complicated and mm-hmm. that's where a lot of people stop and that's where the care kind of stops too um and the egos kind of can kick in yes uh, so our specific challenge is how do we take all of these things um and we unravel them such as the complications in the foster care system and and and, and the justice system even for somebody who like us has been studying we've we've been working in the in the field Mm -hmm. um how do we make what's so complicated to understand easier to grasp um and not drain people up there you know make it an exhausting conversation Mm -hmm. i think that the answer really comes from professionals sharing the burden rather than it being inside and if we can bring people together so that, and it might be a mixture of professionals from backgrounds that traditionally have not collaborated with each other, as Rachel was saying. And we, we get folks who are willing to brainstorm. Uh, you share the responsibility. You share uh, insight into needs that people have because the foster care system is very troubled right now. It's not functioning the way that we would like for it to function. Mm. And uh, everybody having their bit that they do and answering and contributing another little piece of the pie, I think that is the way that we go. And that is where an organization like NOSE can help very much because mm-hmm. we're making the connections between those different professions under our umbrella. And hopefully, you know, one of our goals is that we're going to get people who professionally uh, have not, you know, had a, a long history of talking and collaborating to. Mm-hmm to talk and collaborate and, and, you know, as I said, shoulder the burden of that. So I think it's a great organization for uh, so many different social problems that we face. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I totally agree with you on that. Um, I think shouldering the burden, um, I, part of my work is in crisis and the fastest way to bring people together, in my experience, at these extremely heightened moments of human emotion and experience is to say, I think we all have the same goal here. What we want is for this person to be healthy, 
And so I understand that we're coming at this from different angles, but let's learn about these different angles so that we can come up with the most cohesive and relevant plan. Because if we close off our lines of communication, we're absolutely going to miss a piece of this. And I think that we help enable professionals to get past the notion of, well, mm -hmm. we've done it that way before. Because as, as Rachel said in her example of the conference presentation, it was a combination of people who were presenting who had not uh, really had that conversation in the past. And she was yes. lucky enough to be in the audience for that session. And as, as wide a net as we can cast, you know, and, and get people to see their commonality rather than just those silos, mm -hmm. I think it really can, can be such an accelerator of creativity and problem solving because no one discipline has got all the answers. And that's been the approach that we've taken for a very long time. Yes. And just by getting people together, even those who might not identify themselves as human services professionals, like in um, one of my courses that I teach, it is uh, ecological systems in human development. Mm -hmm. We study the influence of uh, the, the physical environment, the psychological environment, socioeconomic status, culture, all these things and how they influence the individual's life. Mm -hmm. Teach that course as a service learning course. And we collaborated with different departments within the college to solve real life problems. So Impressive. One, one semester um, we collaborated with um, our design technology program where the professor is an architect. And we, we found peer-reviewed work that talked about the influence of uh, urban blight on mental health, you know, depression and violence. And where if you clear up a space in one block, they, they found evidence that they could measure the improvement in symptoms of depression and gun wow. violence went down. So we put together a plan where we were going to, and we're still working to make this a reality beyond the plan, but the students, you know, they learned from me, they learned from the, the architect professor about the way that we can change the physical environment to move that block. And if you go block by block, you can make, you know, you go from neighborhoods to yeah. communities. So that is not a partnership that you generally think of, an architect, a human services professional. But working together like that and being familiar with what's in the literature, it was a wonderful partnership. And we love yeah. working on that project. That's so impressive. That is so cool. Yeah, because you don't think about those things. Um, and it's a new idea in general. Um, I would maybe the last two decades that we've seen people slowly realizing, oh, some of the functionalities of what I do in my vocation or in my passion, I can't un I can't untangle them from, you know, other disciplines that I might not be interested in. And it forces people to work together, right? Yes, exactly. I think that's so well stated that it's, 
it's realizing we can't untangle this. Um, my, Don, it's so interesting that you talk about architecture. So my sister works in corporate interior design. And you would think that doesn't have a lick of anything to do with my job. She oh, and I absolutely. have the most robust conversations because her, her zone as um, how do people work, how do people learn, how do people communicate, what do they need in their spaces to be able to produce um, quality work, um, effective collaboration, effective partnership, it, it touches everything. And developing rapport with clients start before they even meet us. Oh yeah. When they walk into the, the office, what they see is a projection of who we are. Mm -hmm. We can, can very consciously design that and make it welcoming and, and comfortable for our particular uh, clientele base is, it's going to make our job of, uh, which we have very little time to do, develop rapport with your client, because first impression, tons of weight. So I, I think that there's a, a tremendous amount of truth in what you're talking about in uh, conscious uh, design of workspace, and, you know, it not only makes us as professionals work more uh, smoothly, but it, it, it's one of the first steps and it actually begins the therapeutic process and relationship yes. between practitioner and client. Yeah. Um, this is such a funny thing, but a couple of years ago, I, I actually, I painted this office and when I was talking with our maintenance department about why I chose the color that I did, I said, I didn't want the typical, frankly, dirty looking institutional beige. And one of the guys actually picked up the paint can that was being used to paint our offices, that institutional beige. Guess what the name of it was? Office white. Office white. And I was like, we, we have, we have tried to refine this sterility down to a place that nothing feels homey. And if we're going to talk about the core of human experiences, if we're going to talk into the, these, these deep, dark, disturbing, ooh, ugly things to talk about, like adverse childhood experiences, like domestic violence, like in institutional racism, we need to have homey environments mm -hmm. because if we're going to try to have sterile conversations, I'm sorry, if we're going to try to have um, deep conversations in sterile places, we will eventually wind up having sterile conversations as well. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. And, and in completing the biopsychosocial assessment, you're asking yes. some very intimate information of your client. Mm -hmm. And if they're sitting in what, you know, that institutional setting that, that yeah. is the feeling of a sterile laboratory, you know, yes. uh, they need to feel at home and comfortable. And I think that that's such a crucial thing. And, um, you know, getting back to collaboration, you know, the work that your sister uh, has done in being able to help uh, design appropriate settings and us working with other professionals from not disciplines that have not traditionally be, been considered human services, 
they, they can have tremendous benefits uh, on us to cut down on, I mean, you, you brought up the issue of, of burnout. Mm-hmm. And when you think about burnout, when you're working in this sterile environment and if everything's white, it shows every speck of dirt, every time something's touched a it almost feels like a, an open-celled prison, you know, that you're walking into. And you're not going to uh, feel warm and welcome and trusting of people who in that assessment process are asking very, very uh, personal questions. You need to feel comfortable with that person. So I think it's crucial that we collaborate with others. Yes, and part of what I think knows is driving so hard is that we're not just looking at people who are already practitioners. One of our base focuses is preparing students so that they know what they're getting into, that it's not just um, an internship where you you file papers for six hours a week or however much it is. Um, I think one of the things that knows is really great about working towards is giving students the most information manageable so that when they enter the field, they're not blindsided. Um, One of the areas that I'm particularly interested in in my dissertation is that people are most likely to leave the field within the first three years that they start, whether that's nurses, educators. If you can make the past three years, the likelihood that you'll remain goes up significantly. We have so many young people with incredible skills. And frankly, you know, I'm, I'm old enough now that I really feel comfortable saying like, they were brought up having conversations more advanced, more insightful, more real about the human situation than when I was. <laughs> and that wasn't terribly long ago that I graduated college, but still the amount of information that, that our students nowadays have been exposed to and the things that they've been asked to address in high school, in their college programming, is so much more inclusive. And, and if we lose those people, we're losing fantastic resources. So I'm so appreciative that NOSE has targeted students. We're targeting new professionals to say, how can we support you? What can we do for you? so that you get to stay in this thing that you love doing. Right, yeah, and I've, I've, always, I've always been just so stern about that exact thing. Don't, you don't wanna be in this kind of discipline. Um, and I mean the, the whole you know, service, the extent of serving other people in general, if your heart's not there yes. um, from the get-go, right? But then there are those who, who are like, oh, you know, they, they don't, they, it's there, they come in, they have these hopes, they get the right education or they have the, you know, the, the right training, however it's um, provided. And then they get to a position where either they're neglected or mm-hmm. there's too much work put on them. And it's kind of like the institution has now taken you know, the, the social services and the, the human development process and institutionalize that just like you were saying is perfect 
students go into school, they go into class, they're like, oh yeah, I like this. They learn, they graduate, then they get into these positions that no one has come back and you know and reviewed. No one's asking, you know, how do we make the position of the social worker uh, better? How do we look at the system, um, you know, the governmental system and social services in that regard, and see where we can make improvements? Right? It's kind of just like a we lost some people. Let's get more out and just keep this cycle going. Oh, since I didn't come from the social work background, um, I only watched the process. One of the things that I really wonder about is that the social work ethical code says self-care is ethical care. And if you are not caring for yourself, you are not practicing with good ethics. And yet, when someone is getting an MSW, they go to school, many of them are working at least part-time, many of them full-time so that they can help to earn their degree and they have to do an internship. What kind of self-care is it when someone is doing a 16-hour internship, a 40-hour-a-week job, if you're lucky it's only 40, and you're going to school? Is that self-care? Is that a practical method of saying to somebody, self-care is ethical care? Or is this a practice that we've clung to that potentially needs to be reformed so that we really are preparing people to absorb what's happening in the world? And then yes. you add on top of that, is an excellent point that you raised, but you add on top of that, that many students have children. Uh, yeah. And, you know, be, you, the, the notion of the starving student is not a fiction, you know, that's a real thing. We face, yeah. you know, I teach at a community college level and, yeah. you know, these are not people who come from multiple generations of college, you know, their yes. generation. They're finding their own way through. They might not be doing it the most efficient way, which ends up costing them more money. Right. And the, you know, back when I was in college, you know, Pell Grants were much more generous than they are mm -hmm. now. Um, mm -hmm. So those who were first generation and struggling economically, they could get a lot more grants that, do not have to be paid back. Now, primarily, financial aid is given through uh, loans. So it takes years and decades for some people to be able to pay back their debt. So yep. you like to think of you yourself paying your dues in the first couple years or while you're finishing graduate school, and more and more people, that period of paying your dues through continuing to pay back you know, your student loan, it goes on, you know, for half of some people's careers. Absolutely. It really makes it so difficult. So people who go into our line of work, they have been through something and they want to try to help make things easier for other people. I think that it is, as you said, very vital that we have students engaged in this. And I think that we need to reach out to more colleges and universities and they're the directors of uh, human services programs and maybe even their psychology and and education departments uh, mm -hmm. we are so inclusive so we we need to reach out to them and get them involved um they they need to be part of our you know their their best and their brightest need to part be part of our 
um, National Human Services Honor Society, which we provide to yeah. campuses. And, and we've got, you know, Rachel is our, our membership lead, and we've got a category of membership for students mm -hmm. and professionals. And the fact that we're doing what we're doing right now uh, with your assistance case, you're a student and you grew up with the technologies that people my age did not grow up with. And, you know, I was in college and I remember typing my term papers on a typewriter. So we didn't even have word processors. So, you know, um, a lot of faculty members are, are there especially the baby boomers, you know, who are still um, in, in academe. And I think just like when we were talking about bringing in people from different disciplines to collaborate with each other, bringing in multiple generations of professionals to collaborate is essential because I listen to podcasts and I love them, but I don't know the first thing about putting one together and editing. And we put out a call through the, the NOS uh, nationalhumanservices.org website. And Ace was one of the students who reached out and said, I would love to be part of um, the, the creation and editing of a a video podcast. So uh, we do have some people on our board who are much more technically savvy than others. Uh, none of them have the white hair that I've got, but... Uh, <laughs> have them too, don't worry. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, we can bring experience and an, an awful lot to the... the um, program and, and the organization, but I think it's essential, you know, you always want to make sure that you're feeding the organization with, with new talent and with people who are up and comers and get them involved. And from the classroom, I can tell you that um, your generation and even the students who are a little bit younger, they excite me so much because they're so engaged, they're so enthusiastic, and they're not, they're not willing to throw in the towel and say, you know, the, the old answer of it's never been that way, we can't fix it. Uh, you all are about, okay, tell me what needs done and we're going to do it. And that really helps those of us who've been around a little bit longer to avoid that burnout because we get re-energized by our students. And I'm very optimistic about the, the generation of students that are coming up right now. I, I love working with uh, not only the returning uh, students, but the traditional aged students. Mm -hmm. uh, th they bring so much energy to what's going on. And when I suggest things like service learning, they don't, grumble and say, oh, well, we're probably going to have to go out and, you know, they're excited. They can't wait to hear about it. Good. I, I think that it's absolutely vital that, that we have that line and the open invitation to students to engage 
and then retain them through our new professional membership level. And, and then once they become established professionals or educators, they, they get those membership levels as well. So I, I'm really excited about the young people, the, these new generations. They're, they're, they're much less jaded than some of the older generations are. The sense that I get from students today, and I think it's students from middle school all the way on up through graduate school, is we are challenged and we're challenging um, in action ways. We are pushing and we're driving and it takes an immense amount of um, emotional management, but also force. And at the same time, we're, we're having things pushed back and some are things that we need to hear, things that we need to understand. And sometimes it is sort of, Casey, what you referenced and Don, I, I think that you did too, the old phrase, this is just how it's done. Um, this group of students I observe is asking, but why is it done this way? Mm -hmm. More maybe than prior groups of students have done, than prior um, generations have done. And of course, if you, if you ask people who are really into understanding the generational differences, what each letter or group or era belongs to, the questioning is part of what drives people crazy about millennials on town. Mm -hmm. <laughs> At the same time, if we don't have a good question to the answer, but why is it done this way? If we can't formulate clear, reasonable, practical, meaningful reasons why we're doing something a certain way, tradition is not the hill to die on today. It's just not. No. <laughs> not 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 what, what what we do is and that's I mean that's just applicable everywhere. We're talking about all sorts of disciplines, um, and all sorts of students of different backgrounds mm -hmm. that want to serve humans. You the, to serve another individual or population or group is usually based on your own personal experience, and that doesn't hold up to tradition because tradition just kind of you know in the broad scheme of things, it's just something that's like a practice or you know it stays the same like. Yes. That doesn't work when we're trying to better ourselves or better other people. Right. I'm not to say tradition isn't important, you know, um, but you, you're absolutely correct. You nailed on the head. We are one of the first, I'd say generations, ours, and then um, as a millennial and then Gen Z, and then gosh, they're, they're now the ones that are even younger than that can comprehend <laughs> these days. Um, we are the ones that say, this isn't working. Why are we, why are we, why? What do you mean? Why? Why? Like, it's not, it doesn't work. You know, you can't make toast with a broken toaster. <laughs> and yes. I th we, it's a generational experience for sure. We, I think we're accidentally invited to question things based on this experiences we had like 9-11 and, and the war and, and feeling all these things that are so far outside of us. We're, we're now at the age when we be like, why? We have Don's generation to thank for this. So let's, let's be clear about this is PTSD as a diagnosis. That when soldiers came home from the first and second world war, if they were sent home for shell shock, which really was, it was, it was combat distress, 
they were not entitled to, to veteran benefits. And so moving on up through the Vietnam War, when people really started to challenge, what are we doing for our veterans? What are we doing to our veterans? Some of that initial move toward PTSD came from people like Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, um, who were medical students or fresh out and doing their residency or, you know, they're, they're really new in the practice saying, I just got done learning about the science here. And I think that there's something that we're missing. And I don't think that we get to chalk this up to this person is just anxious. Yeah. And so we have now several generations of people moving towards making PTSD, not just a veteran diagnosis, but a, a diagnosis for people who have experienced trauma of all kinds. And yet when Dr. Vince Felitti and Dr. Bob Onda did the first adverse childhood experiences study, people said, that's not science, that's bad behavior. But now we're 20 years on with it, 21 years on with this, that they've been studying adverse childhood experiences and it is absolutely the science. So it's so many generations coming forward to say, this is where this is happening. And we're proving it with the science, we're proving it with the research. And when we're coming back to our clients and the people who've had these kinds of experiences, they're saying, yes, finally, someone understands. This is my favorite question to ask people. And this is, I think the note that we should kind of uh, end in this episode on is that I would like you to both give me uh, a brief explanation of how you ended up here. And I'm not just talking about your vocation. I'm talking about, like you mentioned earlier, what experiences or experience was it in your life that made you realize, okay, I'm gonna serve other people and that's what I'm gonna do going forward. So Rachel, you go first. I'm just gonna... <laughs> she said, where are the tissues? Where are the tissues? <laughs> um, so my story is um, I've probably developed clinical depression around age 12 and it ran in my family. Mental illness runs in my family. And yet simultaneously, I came from a family that we didn't talk about mental illness. Um, it was very stigmatized, but um, I started treatment in college um, and in 2012, um, went on medication. I've had a therapist, the same therapist now since 2010. But in 2015, I was in a serious car accident um, and my head hit the roof of my car. Yeah. My car actually, um, two of my tires came off the ground. Um, I sustained a serious concussion, which the NFL talks about it, but in the public conversation, the behavioral, emotional, thought functioning disturbances that come along with a lot of concussions are not talked about as much as they should be. Um, I wound up becoming very, very severely suicidal. Um, I visited two different crisis units and the first crisis unit, I was um, escorted back to the room um, after you know, answering all of my questions, yes, I had a plan. Um, yes, I, I was fairly sure it was lethal. Um, and right in front of me, they took all of the furniture out, right in front of me. And then they locked me into that room. I was not allowed to contact my husband who is an excellent human being and would have been an enormous support for me at that time. Um, 
there was a series of things that happened that night. Suffice to say, a man who had shot and killed two people earlier in the night was put in the crisis room across from me and he was allowed to keep his door open. He was allowed to wear his clothing. Um, and I walked out of that first crisis unit and thought, if I'm treated worse than a double murderer, what is my life really worth? And so instead of getting the help that I needed, I got worse and my plan became even more lethal. When I finally came back around to mental health, which took a lot of working on physical health because it was, it was an injury, I looked around and thought, there just has to be a better way to do this. We can't use this medical model of risk reduction to dehumanize people. And then we can't beg the question and pretend that we don't understand why people who are in severe emotional distress, when we dehumanize them, why they get worse. We have to stop asking that question like it's not really, really clear. So that's my mission. And my doctorate, my specialty is crisis, disaster, and intervention. Because I'm going to flip this thing on its head if it's the last thing I do. <laughs> Don, how'd you get here? Well, um... My, my journey to what I'm doing right now started when I was a teenager. Um, I, I've got what they eventually found out uh, to be Crohn's disease, and everybody's heard of it because of the commercials for the medications <clears throat> that are on TV constantly. But when it was the early 1980s, they didn't have the technology to be able to diagnose the way that they do now. And uh, they just knew that I was very, very sick. Um, I was five foot eight and 80 pounds, and I, I just could not eat a thing. And horrible pain in my abdomen. And my local doctors, you know, they didn't have. Uh, the, the scopings that they could do right now and diagnose you, you know, fairly simply. Back then, the answers were pretty much, uh, you know, if they figured out that it was Crohn's, which took them a long time to do, uh, the treatments back then was mega doses of um, steroids like prednisone, which caused psychotic symptoms. Wow. Um, or bowel resection. So I've had four bowel resections over my life. But um, what started it was, you know, I was sick. They didn't know what was wrong. They just knew that I was very, very sick. I was taken to uh, a children's hospital and I was greeted um, in the, the night because they drove me there overnight. And the doctor introduced himself as I'm a child oncologist which I didn't know what that meant, but they had initially diagnosed me with terminal cancer throughout most of my digestive system. Wow. My family came uh, down, they um, came to say goodbye for the last time. And they said, the doctor said, we're gonna give you some surgery to buy you a little more time. There was no talk of we're gonna treat you and make you better. They saw it as advanced stage four. Wow. But in surgery, I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease. And because I was so sick and so malnourished, 
Um, I spent three months in the hospital that first time getting IV um, feedings because they wanted to rest the digestive system. So I was fed through my jugular vein. And um, two weeks after I got out, I had a, a, a bowel obstruction and had to go back in. But during the, the months that I was in the hospital, you know, I saw something that most children my age at the time did not really get to see. First, I faced my mortality at a very young age. But then, um, especially as I got older and learned more, because a lot was kept from me as a child, I was shielded. But it affected every member of my family. You know, Dad was working at U.S. Steel at the time. Uh, my mom had to quit her job, so he was working. You know, if he wasn't asleep, he was working to be able to pay medical bills. Mother stayed with me at the Children's Hospital for those three months for that first visit. And uh, my brother is just a little over a year younger than me. And my grandparents had just retired and they moved across the state. They put their dog in the kennel, dropped everything, no questions asked. My brother spent those months in his bedroom, wouldn't come out. He was really traumatized by what was going on. And my mother did not have the support of her husband. Um, she was isolated. She was surrounded by the suffering of her child, you know, which now that I'm a dad, I, I have so much sympathy for that. So it caused a crisis on multiple levels. As I got old enough to understand that uh, an illness like that is a crisis, not just for the patient, but for everyone who cares about that patient. And that we need higher quality services in hospitals and other places where we look at the patient as a family system rather than one sick person. I wanted to be able to provide that and then teach future generations how to do that. So that's why I'm doing what I'm doing right now. Thank you for sharing. I've um, definitely learned about family systems and it's even in, you know, um, our ethics, you know, our standard, we talk about that all the time, at least the objectives, but I've never had someone give me that kind of perspective of what, yeah. you know, it would look like in that kind of regard. And so y'all are great. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> I love it. Um, I guess on that note, we're done. I think we nailed it. We nailed our objective today of describing any, anybody watching so this is going to know like, okay, in a lot of good stuff. These people care, right? At least somebody can take take that much away. And so um, I'm excited. Thank you all so much. Thank you so much to everyone that tuned into the premiere episode of Gnosis Roundtable Discussions. Mr. Don and Miss Rachel are wonderful human beings to work with, and I appreciate the richness of what they bring to the table. If you haven't yet, check out our Instagram and our Facebook, as well as hit the subscribe button below for more content to come. We appreciate you viewing and checking us out, and we will see you in December.